Well, welcome everyone uh, to our third Theology on Tap summer series um, on the whole Christ, or sorry, mystical body and the sacraments. Our topic for today is the whole Christ, sinners, saints, and the sacraments. And we are uh, delighted to welcome Father Kevin Grove from the Congregation of Holy Cross, who happens to be a friend of mine. As a brief introduction, uh, Father Kevin is, is, like I said, a priest at, in the Congregation of Holy Cross, an assistant professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame. After a year in parish ministry in South Bend, I believe Christ the King, is that right? Christ the King. Uh, Father Kevin completed his PhD in philosophical theology at the University of Cambridge. He also worked as an assistant chaplain to the Catholic community there at the St. John Fisher House. He continued his research as a postdoctoral research, sorry, uh, fellow at the Catholic University of Paris, France. Uh, Father Kevin was born and raised in Montana, where he grew up on a farm. His research includes memory, Christology, St. Augustine, and the theolo theological writings of Basil Moreau. And he recently completed a book entitled Augustine on Memory, which I think is coming sometime this fall. Yep, nice. Uh, he serves pastorally at Notre Dame as an assistant faculty chaplain, chaplain uh, to the Master of Divinity program, and in the context in which I know him as a pastoral resident for the best men's dorm on campus, Dunn Hall. Uh, in Dunn, he is affectionately known as Rev Kev, um, and he's known as the annual organizer of the Dunn Hall retreat, the largest retreat on campus, um, and the presider of Tuesday night pizza masses, uh, which are followed by, um, well, sorry, the masses don't have pizza. Clarification. <laughs> Tuesday night masses, which are followed by pizza in his room where about 20 guys pile in uh, for some uh, stimulating, at the very least, discussion. Um, I also had the privilege of taking him uh, as a senior, his class on the sacraments, uh, which was a master's level course, which I had no business taking. Um, responsible for probably half of my all-nighters that semester, um, which might have been a personal problem. Um, you could ask him about these, but the two-pagers, his assignments were no joke. Um, needless to say, uh, he deals with me, so he's very patient pastor, but also a brilliant intellectual. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Father Kevin Grove. Thank you, Stephen, for that very, very kind introduction. It's a joy to be with you all. Um, really special to be here at Theology on Tap. We've got a perfect evening after a great summer, um, and so it's good that we begin with a bit of gratitude. As we do so, though, I'm really aware that I was putting myself in your place, that if I were to come to a series on the mystical body of Christ, um, I might be sort of generally intrigued but then sort of assume that everything was going to be a yawn that might or might not be relevant to me. And so I want to begin with a bit of a humorous anecdote, and then we're going to plunge into theology. But the goal of talking about the whole Christ tonight, saints, sinners, and sacraments, is precisely to speak about its enduring relevance immediately to us. Um, because we can often speak of the body of Christ as, or the mystical body as if, it, if mysticism were somehow way out there, apart from me, much different from the extraordinary taco or beer that might be very near to me right now. 
And so the goal of this evening is, is going to be to collapse that distance. And I recall as a young adult um, myself in Cambridge, England as a graduate student, um, one experience that sort of can set, the, set off the frame for the evening. And I had gone to this sort of Harry Potter style dining hall with all of the people in my cohort for a dinner and afterward went to continue the conversation over a pint at a pub, okay? So parallel activity, um, just in a 16th century pub rather than this most amazing lawn outside of Little Flower Church. And trying to, with a very, very secular crowd, and I looked exactly like this, except with a suit jacket uh, and an academic robe on, to try to look like a little bit cooler, like, and priests struggle to do this, and like the only thing we can do is like try to pop the collar open, right? It's like the attempt to be approachable, and it doesn't really work, but we try it anyway. Um, so I popped my collar open and went up to the bar to order my pint at this pub. And in addition to my sort of new hopeful friends um, in other disciplines who are not studying theology, um, a young adult-ish American man and woman my age were standing there at the bar also. And as I placed the order for my pint, the man turned and he just looked at me, like, right, like, he's only four inches away from me at this point, and just asks, I've not met these people before in my life, are you for real? <laughs> and startled a bit, um, I looked back and just said, excuse me? Um, and he repeats the question. He's like, are you for real? Are you really a priest? And I, maybe it was because I'd already had a long dinner with a glass of wine, and I'd been, like, trying to be cool anyway. And I just looked back, and I said, of course I'm for real and I'm really a priest. What do you do and are you for real? Which turned out for once in my um, life to be like God's providence uh, because his occupation was as unreal as my own because he was an FBI agent and she was CIA counterterrorism. <laughs> They'd been working in London on a project that of course they couldn't talk about um, but the news made sort of evidence a couple of days later. Um, for the week had an afternoon off and decided to come up to Cambridge. So we had a really interesting conversation at that point about the non-reality of all three of our jobs. My being a priest, him being an FBI agent, and she being a or CIA counterterrorism person. Um, and the extraordinary part about it was it was an amazing conversation um, about the proximity of the things we deal with. And it's the only time I've shared a pint with people in the intelligence services and an FBI agent kindly bought my pint. I tell that story though, because when we speak about the body of Christ um, in often flippant ways, and sometimes even in our prayer, we can think about it not as a reality as near to us as the air we breathe, but as something very distant. And tonight the goal is to collapse that distance. And so we're going to do it in three parts. The first one is we're going to start with ourselves. And we're going to talk about how it is that in the Jewish and Christian tradition, the way in which we orient our loves, so the basic loves for the realities around us, can either drive us in to be stuck in ourselves or connect us back out to communion. Okay? That's going to be sort of step number one. Step number two is going to be what sort of, in a couple of points, rich theological resources our faith gives to us to be ourselves built into the body of Christ. Okay, that's step number two. And the third step of our time together talking tonight is what that should look like. 
here among us now. And hopefully that will precipitate some worthwhile conversation among uh, yourselves and together as a group afterward. It's something that I confess I am growing in right along with you. So I don't give this talk as someone who has all of that figured out, but yet as a beginner or a student in each of these phases. So let's begin with the first part, learning to love. We can divide, or at least you know, people will say, well, it's all about love. And that's nice and fuzzy and fluffy. But from the very beginning of at least Revelation in the book of Genesis, our tradition is quite precise about defining how we love. And it divides things into three, which I find to be quite identifiable and helpful. Um, and so if we were to talk about the things that you and I, as people in the world, love, um, the authors of Genesis divide them into three. And it comes at this one moment that's like this just half a verse um, of, of uh, Genesis. And it's when Adam, well, Eve really, but Adam eventually saw it too, um, looked at the fruit on the tree and saw that it was three things, pleasing to the eye, good for food, and desirable for gaining wisdom. And we would just pass over that verse um, you know, as if it were a nice description. But that in the ancient world was describing the whole way in which we could categorize how it is that human beings love, okay? And so let me break the three of them down for you. So that fruit was pleasing to the eyes. This is the category for things outside of my body that I might own and have control of. Possessions, okay? This is my clothing. Um, this would be the car, the house, um, the nice possessions that give us joy but are outside of our bodies we wish to see with our eyes and then control. The second one of these three desires was that that fruit was good for food. So if the first one is the, the love of things outside of our bodies, the second one was for things that are pleasing to the human body, okay? Food, drink, sex, pleasure, etc. All things that could be considered bodily goods, okay? The third one, pride of life, so we had outside the body, the body itself, is for the interior, okay? And that's called pride of life or secular ambition sometimes. So how it is that, you know, so what really governs, uh, governs our lives interiorly and our wills. Now the important claim is that these three sorts of loving for possessions, pleasures, and pride are not something that are in themselves sinful. The extraordinary part about the account in Genesis of our describing how we in ourselves love is that these were created good. It's in fact after the fall, where you and I find ourselves this night, um, that these loves become unintegrated. And love of good things, possessions, bodily pleasures, and our pride, our sense of self, can actually become self-isolating. And I won't ask you now to give examples, uh, nor will I ask you that in your small group, but just sort of think this through with me for a moment. In taking uh, just the love that has to do with possessions, sometimes we want more than our fair share. Or the love that has to do with our bodily goods, sometimes we do whatever feels good rather than what is good. I don't know if there's a cutoff after the third or fourth beer at Theology on Tap. You know what I'm saying, right? Sometimes we do what feels good rather than what is good. And third and finally, for that interior love, sometimes our loves become our interior lives become all about us. And so the danger in our human life is that the loves that define us can become self-isolating. 
And when I become a slave to my possessions, physical pleasures, or my interior pride and prestige, I ultimately get, to quote one of my favorites, St. Augustine, stuck in myself, and I remain there. And so the loves that define us can be our greatest inhibition from being in the body of Christ. Now, just to sort of plant the seed that the church has thought about this a little bit, and human life can be a sort of a pedagogical project of teaching us how to love better, like just imagine for a minute, so, you know, theology on tap, um, Fort Wayne, South Bend, young adults, we're going to create a way of teaching everybody in Michiana how to love better. So let's just say instead of my possessions being self-isolating, I might give some of them away in order that other people might have. And when my bodily pleasures become too much about me, maybe I would restrain myself from some sort of pleasure in order that another might eat or drink. And of course, I could think about practicing putting the will of another before my own by doing something like saying a prayer, thy will be done, and meaning what those words intend. Oh, and you just grimace because you already know what I'm going to say. Like here in a moment of joy on a glorious summer day, Father Kevin has introduced Lent. And it's true because those things I just described are almsgiving and fasting and prayer. And those practices, ancient practices of the church, are meant to take, they're meant to be schools, right? Experiments in which we take our interiorly focused loves and we discipline them in a way that draws us into community outside of ourselves. Now, my objection would be, wait a minute, I know a lot of people fasting during the Lent who are really miserable. I live in religious life, so in a community of 70 Holy Cross priests and brothers working on campus at the University of Notre Dame. And some of them, rectors, especially in dormitories, are up very late at night. It's not advisable for them to give up coffee during Lent because they become an actual bear for the whole community, right? You know, sort of people can be hungry and poor and grouchy, um, in ways that totally subvert the ways in which these exercises are meant, meant to connect us back out to the body of Christ. So it's just because someone would take up sort of the practice of working on those three desires doesn't mean that the end it's going to affect is guaranteed, which is why we're in it together. But at the very least, what you can see is if done right, um, when we love well, others might have, others might eat and drink, and we might consider our own wills or our own interior lives in concert with those around us, including our God. And so the claim I want to make is that if the way in which we're going to be the body of Christ together um, is going to have any effect, it's got to start with something as basic as the things we own, the pleasures in which we participate, and the interior pride that governs our lives. Now, what might it look like? Let's say you just bought into that little bit. Okay, that's part one. Let's say you bought in that we're going to work on these three loves together as a school of love. What would it actually mean to get built into the body of Christ together? And here's where we're going to need a couple of saints. We're going to need St. Augustine, 
and we're going to need St. Paul. I'm going to give you just a line of scripture from each one, okay? Now, Augustine is a favorite of mine in part because, like, fourth century, really, really bad young adult um, became great saint, right? He sort of wrote, wrote the book, and you can encounter this in his confessions, on struggling with every one of those desires that I just described. And he found himself totally helpless in some moments of even integrating any one of them. So if this is hard, we're in good company, okay? And the line that Augustine meditates on the most for how it is that he could sort of have Christ come into this in some meaningful way, in some way that was really close to him, was when he struggled to think through why it was when Jesus was dying on the cross, he quotes this one line from a psalm, from Psalm 22. And it's kind of a weird thing for Jesus to do. And this bothers Augustine for like 30 years. So he talks about it a lot. And the line is from Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like we sing this on um, Palm Sunday as the responsorial psalm. Like you, you've heard this before. And if you think about it for just a moment, it's a really weird thing for Jesus to say on Calvary Hill. Because if he was fully God and fully human, how could he be abandoned by God? And if he had a more worked up sense of interior pride like the rest of us, the pride of life we all struggle with so much, he would have realized it would have been a great time to come up with a new saying, right? Like, why the humility? Why quote something? Um, but he does. He quotes a psalm and draws up something from that he would have prayed as a Hebrew child, as a youth. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's so at stake in that is that if Jesus were really abandoned by God, well, on the one hand, he wouldn't have been God. On the other, what if divinity were just somehow like using his humanity like a puppet, right? Like God was some sort of divine ventriloquist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like that's not a real savior either. And Augustine's great insight out of this one scripture line is the following. He spoke in our words so that we might speak in his. He transfigured our voice into himself, into his own. And by taking up not only human life in his body, but at that limit experience of abandonment, Jesus took up human experience when we get to that limit of abandonment too, when we feel the very farthest from God in any of our three broken desires. And that when we cry out in his voice and cry out, we do it in him and him in us. He is already present in our cry, closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's Augustine's first major insight. And the idea is we're being taken up somehow into Christ. Transfigured is the word that he uses. That's step one. That's still just the individual in Christ. We now have to sort of put it together into um, the body of Christ. And for this, there's a second line of scripture, and this we get from St. Paul. So Christ then um, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, and is no longer walking among the Christian community on earth. And Saul, soon to be Paul, our second saint for this process, 
is leaving Jerusalem to go to the north to Damascus and is knocked to the ground um, in art famously off of his horse and goes blind. And he hears a voice from heaven say, in the same grammatical structure as that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? St. Paul hears a voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now he's blind at this point. He can't see anybody. So he asks the voice, well, so who are you and what's going on effectively? Um, this is Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9. And the voice responds that I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, we could say, well, you know, Jesus was just being imprecise with his language at this point um, because Jesus was already ascended to heaven. Who is it um, that Paul, Saul was really persecuting? Well, of course, it was the rest of this believing community. But notice the shift that has happened. If Jesus took up the human cry and abandonment on the cross, in this scene of interaction with St. Paul, we see him still taking up Human persons cry who are on earth. He wasn't around for those who were being harmed by Saul. Nevertheless, he is transfiguring their cry into his own. And from these two passages, our church has an idea that you and I are being transfigured, Augustine's word, into the very body of the whole Christ. We listen to our head gone before us, speak in our words. And it gives us language for the way we experience possessions and pleasures and pride. And we realize that the cries of those around us, the needs of our neighbors, of our spouses, of our coworkers, of our sometimes needy family members, are also the cries of the body of Christ, transfigured into him too. And what it stirs in us, or ought to stir in us, is a very real, concrete, ever-awakening attentiveness to the body of Christ immediately around us. Now, this can be a bit of a pain and a bit of a challenge. And I'll give you one practical example. So St. Augustine, same guy, sticking with him for a moment, back in the day in Carthage, is preaching about what this means. Okay, so you're all now, you imagine being his congregation, convinced that you're part of this body of Christ. You've been grafted into it. You've been speaking in Christ's words. He's been speaking in yours. You've learned things about the heavenly city you wouldn't otherwise know because you're in Christ. And what does that mean? Well, Augustine says, consider your possessions for a minute. They could be being stolen from your apartment. They didn't have apartments, you know, where you lived, uh, as you're sitting here. So what might you do? Well, you could pray to Jesus that he keeps your stuff safe until you get home. But it seems like a poor use of Jesus. And he says to his um, congregants, why don't you just put your riches into Christ where they will be safe? Why don't you give them to the poor? They are the body of Christ. And we have the recording. Like, people in North Africa gasped. <gasps> they're, they're no better than we are, right? Um, because it was such a radical thing.
But this is what like having a thick conception of the body of Christ might mean. We would have to think about what it actually means and what we would owe each other in terms of the sharing of our possessions, the things that bring our bodies the right measure, a virtuous measure of pleasure, and how we discern the will of God together. And if you look, oftentimes um, people interpret Pope Francis in myriad different ways according to their own social station. But if you look at the way he uses this particular word encounter, um, which has been one of the themes of his life uh, and of his papacy, this is what he's talking about, about a real, enduring, ongoing, walking with way of being together in the body of Christ. Now, the possessions are a radical example. I'll give you two, just two. We're not going to do all seven. Um, Stephen and my other former sacrament students can breathe easy. Just going to give you two examples of how this might enact itself sacramentally. The first is confession. So given that we all struggle with the same three desires, it shouldn't be any scandal that we're all going to need forgiveness, right? Um, but in the act of confession, in this very sort of extraordinary and privileged moment, we say when we confess our sins, and I do too, we say the truth about that which had been untrue. If sin is somehow living a lie, then in the act of confessing, we actually speak the truth about that thing. And so already in the act of confession, we are being made more true. And the absolution then joins us back in to a communion of people in the truth, draws us quite literally into the truest thing which we can be, which is the body of Christ together. It always takes us from our self-isolation and plants us back into communion. And so the sacraments, when we think about them rightly, are not sort of achievements for any one of us to sort of attain and then set there up on a shelf as they might increase our pride but rather are things which join us quite concretely into a community of those who are immediately going to receive other sacraments. And the second one is communion. Because when we receive the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ, our head who's gone before us, we're meant to be who we are and become what we receive, such that the same disposition of self-sacrifice might leave the church, leave the mass, and do the same thing in our community. It's a long, slow work, but I'm convinced, friends, that if we are going to be a witness of Christ in our age, it will take a conception of the body of Christ, of the whole Christ, head and members, each of us, that is as life-giving, luminous, practical, and profound as we can make it. I'm always of the contention that if we actually could sort of exhibit this on our faces and with our lives just for a moment, like people would stop us on the sidewalk or in the hallway at work and ask us what we had found and how they might have some too that the way that we should live the body of Christ would be so apparent on our faces and by our actions with how we interact 
with our families, friends, coworkers, and those who are difficult, that it might actually inspire, move, and shape us. And to that end, I'll give the final word of this part of the presentation to Pope Benedict. I quoted Pope Francis, so I'll also add Pope Benedict, two living guys in white. Um, and he has this extraordinary image of if we really live the body of Christ well, what it's meant to become. And in my, it's probably my favorite line in theology outside of the Bible, and that says a lot because I'm a big fan of Augustine. Um, but at the very end of his book on what heaven is going to be like, Pope Benedict writes the following, and he says, the redeemed are not going to be adjacent to one another in heaven. There's not going to be a Stephen cloud next to an Andy cloud next to a Veronica cloud who's also playing a harp. Um, the Simpsons got it wrong, friends, sorry. Rather, heaven is that which together in Christ we become. So we don't sort of go to a place as much as in Christ we together come to constitute heaven. And if we could remind one another, sort of at Benedict's inspiration, that our eternal being is that closely yoked to one another, then we have all the more inspiration to take the possessions which we have and see with our eyes, the pleasures we entertain with our bodies, and the pride which runs and governs our every day, we have much more urgent reason to draw them together into a real communion of Christ. It's a challenge for me as much as it is for you, but I suspect it is indeed the challenge of our life, our church, and our time. Hi, I'm Lynette. Um, our group, we were talking about, oh, which question was it? Number two, where it was talking about the individual actions of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, yeah. connecting it back to the community. We were able to provide examples of prayer, almsgiving on different you know, uh, levels and things. But when it came to fasting, we were struggling to figure out examples, you know, beyond Lent where, you know, the typical Fridays during Lent and then Ash Wednesday, those things. What are some suggestions that you would offer to go beyond the Fridays during Lent in terms of fasting? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Uh, and this is a fun one to brainstorm with friends um, and, and not just the Tuesday before Lent starts or the Thursday after Lent begins. Um, but, and just ones, especially talking with undergraduates on campus who are reticent to just give up candy once again, but do something else. Um, I think that oftentimes thinking about giving some pleasure up that helps connect us back out to others. So I know folks who have fasted from some aspect of their digital lives, um, because that's often self-isolating time, right? So the time that I'm streaming something um, is often just me or just me alone. Um, and doing something really quite um, purposeful with that time, right? Like maybe I'm reaching out to um, someone who's isolated. Uh, maybe I'm actually just making a point of calling one of my college friends or you know, walking down the hall. I mean, I live in an undergraduate dorm, forgive this. You live in much more adult, uh, adult realities. Um, but walking down the hall and, and sort of reaching out to someone. Um, 
being in touch with a neighbor, uh, going and doing something nice. So I think that the key when it comes to that sort of fasting is yes, not doing something for a while, um, but in order that um, some other community communal reality might take shape. Um, and in the sort of concrete way in Lent too, this is why uh, you know people have sort of canned food drives along with their their Friday fasting, right? Is that they consume less meat or less food in order that they might produce food for a food bank, um, right? And so in a, in a very concrete way, um, not just to go without, but to do with less in order to do something for someone else, right? And so the key is to be really creative about that communal connection, which is the second piece. Um, and that's the part I encourage folks to just sort of you know, expand, uh, expand the limits of, of what that might be. Um, and that's where it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't just have to do with food. It can have to do with, for instance, our digital lives. And then all of a sudden that opens up like lots of interesting worlds. It's a great question though. Um, and can be a fun thing, right? That hopefully people can, can talk about together. So I uh, encourage you in doing it. And sometimes people have, have really great ideas about this. I'm always enthused by the sorts of things that uh, my own students come up with in the course of, in the course of Lent and are pretty candid about. Um, yeah, I, let me add just one more. I've oftentimes seen people uh, give up some time that they might be um, consuming some sort of pleasure, uh, I, that is fasting, in order to like read a text together um, and have a conversation. Same idea. Great question, thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Mitch, uh, Father Kevin. Thank you again for speaking uh, <clears throat> tonight. Um, we were talking about question three. And um, I kind of brought up, you know, you know, like social media. Um, how do I, what are your thoughts on like what St. Augustine would classify that as? Like, is that an exterior kind of good or like of the body? Because like, you know, like the like endorphins from like the likes and stuff. Or is it more of like an interior good? Or is it like so dangerous because it's all three? And that's why it's like so hard to like quit the social media um, specifically. But I, I wanted to know what your thoughts were. It's it's a great question, Mitch. And I have to like make a caveat here. I'm like pro social media, so like I'm a uh, theological advisor to the Hallow app. I don't know if any of you all use that. Um, so this is an, an app for people in the 20 to 40 age group of Roman Catholics to like increase their prayer lives. And one of the things that the Hallow app does is that it allows people to sort of form communities that respond to you know like. Mike Schmitz's Bible in a year, or listen to the gospel in a month, or learn to pray the rosary, or Lexio Divina, et cetera, et cetera. And it provides like social communities where people can respond to one another. Now, like I personally don't do that. I have a community with whom I pray morning and evening prayer. But all I'm saying is that, yes, though media does approach us at each of the levels of our loves, right? Especially, I think the, the most difficult, I suspect, is the internal uh, pride of life. Right, and this is the trouble when people have fear of missing out. Right, they're looking at something on somebody else's Facebook feed that looks so amazing, they feel bad that they're not experiencing it, and actually, presumably, sharing in somebody else's joy actually makes them really miserable, sitting in their own space, looking through a feed. So, I, I suspect that pride is the toughest uh, angle for that to, uh, angle for that to come in, but probably why why fasting might be uh, might be a worthwhile part. So, I do think that media hits all three of our loves. Um, and that does make it a really thorny and difficult thing. Um, but I think the same criterion, um, whichever love media might be hitting, 
is the one we can use to evaluate our habits with it, right? So is it something, whether um, my use of media is dealing with um, possessions, pleasures, or pride, is it something that is self-isolating me, right? Like, is this something that's drawing me into myself out of relationship with other people in a profound or serious way? Or is it something that's actually connecting me to the body of Christ? Um, and it can go both ways, right? I mean, there are really interesting ways that during a really challenging pandemic year, people were able to have conversations and uh, even times of prayer and liturgy of purpose when they couldn't leave the confines of their own homes. Um, and that's, that was really precious, especially for the elderly. Um, and so, you know, there are ways in which these can, can actually draw us into communion too. Um, so I don't want to be too negative on, on matters of media. I think that the question or sort of the examination of conscience that comes along with has to be self-isolating or communion producing. It's a great question, Mitch. Hi there, I'm Michael. Uh, thank you for coming here to speak to us, Father Kevin. Uh, we in our group here were discussing question number five, and while we had our own uh, own discussion on this question, we also wanted to know how you would answer it. See, no, but you you know that I'm going to flip this back on you, right? Um, so so I'm going to want to report, M Michael. Yeah, Michael, thank you for the question. I'm going to want to report from your group. So what were the best answers? And I know they're sitting right there around you. So if you want to, you want to spread the wealth, you can do it too. Yes. Uh, one, of, one of the things we brought up was bringing like a neighborly dinner together, like something akin to a family dinner, but with your neighbors as opposed to your biological family. As, as folks think about ones they might want to say, let me, let me just give an example from my own childhood that, uh, that struck me, and then you could sort of imagine from there. Like, oftentimes, the, the number of times we encounter difficulty in our lives is not insignificant, right? And the number of times we go through uh, transitions in our lives. Um, like, we have um, a couple of, of my colleagues over here with their little daughter, who I just met, who's seven weeks old and is absolutely adorable. Um, you know, they've had a new one into their lives who has disrupted their sleep schedules in a way that's inconceivable, right? No one is as exhausted as a new parent, um, and especially a new mom. And we I am grateful for your vocation this night. I think oftentimes the way in which the community bands together um, to care for by means of food, chores, practical things, um, those in our very neighborhoods who are going through some sort of transition, right, like having a child, having a surgery, um, makes all the difference in a world, in the world. And I can tell, just because they're not here, my family's very far away in Montana, I can tell one story about this that I've always found inspiring. Um, it would make my dad's ears turn red, but because he's a very quiet guy. Um, but it was one that I keep in the back of my mind when I think about things like this. And so my family has a family-owned and operated wheat and barley farm, so hard red winter wheat for bread and barley for beer. Thank you to all of you who are consuming a beverage tonight, um, as well as Angus beef cattle and a herd of sheep. Um, and for one short lamentable time, we also had chickens, but that's a longer story. Um, but our neighbor across the fence, his name was Dale, um, and Dale at one point, so this was during the harvest time, so the only time of income production for a farming family um, and Dale, the neighbor across the fence, came and got up into my father's combine and asked him if he would harvest Dale's fields as well. 
um, which is a big ask, actually, because people sort of work dawn until after dusk in order to sort of bring in the income um, for that time. And the reason was Dale could no longer afford financially, he was going bankrupt, to sort of put fuel into his combine to harvest his field. And we as children didn't know what we were doing sort of in this act. Uh, I came to find it out later. Um, but my father harvested Dale's grain, took it to town, didn't take any of the profit, but gave all of it back to Dale. Um, it was just the right thing to do. Um, another member of the body of Christ, this time our neighbor was in need. Um, and I should preface this by saying, like, the neighbor was a Vietnam vet, like, big, gruff, like, tough sort of character with great big hands that I would never want to make mad. Um, and at the end of this interaction, I just watched these two farmers who um, don't much express emotion um, out in a stubble field. And Dale and his wife brought out a home together, brought out homemade cherry pie and some lemonade. And like a handshake and a piece of pie and a glass of lemonade, like without any words, like said a great deal about the body of Christ. Um, that sort of immediate response in, to, to the world around us is really earth-shaking. Um, I was talking to, I do university work, and was talking to a parent not long ago who went, it has a number of children, some of whom are, were at Notre Dame, and went through like an unspeakable family tragedy, like right before Christmas break, which left their family destitute. Is there like this complicated story, but that's the, the sum of it. After first calling like law enforcement and a lawyer, they then called the financial aid office to say like, uh, we're out. And the person on the other end, um, who is a colleague um, who can't control federal grants and things like that, said, just give me some time. They'll graduate from here. These were college freshmen. Um, and at that point, you know, sort of those around responded with full force, and they figured it out in quite amazing ways. Um, and it meant that you know, other employees were driving these students up to O'Hare Airport so that someone else could buy them a plane ticket to fly them home for Christmas. I mean, it was really complicated. But these needs present themselves to us every day. And the question is how it is that we can take first the time um, and then the spiritual humility to say, all right, I'll do my part in responding. It's a great question. And I hope you continue to share all of your answers to question number five throughout the course of the rest of your summer and the rest of your theologies on TAPS. Thanks, Thanks, Father Kevin. We have time for one more question, and I think I see a hand in the back. Daniel. Hi, Father. Thank you very much for your talk. My name is Daniel. Um, when I was thinking about the title of your talk, The Whole Christ, it reminded me that we're also one body with the souls in purgatory and the saints in heaven. And I was wondering what practices or insights you would have and how we can deepen our communion with those two parts of our, of our Christian body. It's a great question. Um, and so for the, the duty of love that we owe the souls in purgatory is to continue to pray in communion for and with them, right? Um, which is why in our daily prayer, like point one would be to remember them. Um, and that sort of mindfulness, the abiding mindfulness that we might exercise toward one another day in, day out in the flesh is what we owe those who've gone before us. Um, the saints, of course, that cloud of witnesses 
are both um, those who are examples for us to strive toward, but also those who walk with us. Um, and my recommendation is we don't use the litany of the saints nearly enough. Um, and in fact, I know the saints, and I'm not saying a, a specific litany that you have to download. I'm saying one you can figure out on your own. Saint so-and-so, pray for me. Saint so-and-so, pray for me. Saint so-and-so, pray for me. Um, and pick the 15 whose virtues you need that day and make your own litany. I mean, I need at least 15 virtues a day. Some of you could probably get by with two or three. But pick those saints and make a litany and, uh, of your own with the saints. And then trust um, that those friends and models of virtue, um, intercessors for us, are walking with you. Um, so one, prayers for the souls of purgatory. Two, uh, the saints we believe are already in communion uh, in heaven. And so just don't be hesitant about asking for help. Um, if anything, I appreciate them more and more because I feel like they understand. Because um, many of them were quite candid about their bad days, uh, habits that were frustrating, um, or loves that were difficult to reform. Um, and so I couldn't commend more, um, not only regular prayer to the saints, but in a quite personal and trusting way um, that you are not alone. Great question. Thank you. Thanks so much, Father Kevin. Once again, um, let's give him a round of applause.